Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, we ask because we are in need of Christ's light to shine in the darkness in our hearts, darkness in our world. And Lord, would you show us that deep need? We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So for a long time, last few years, I've been really captivated by the ways that John and his gospel uses imagery from the creation story and from the fall. You see it in the prologue, right? Very first thing he says, in the beginning was the word. John is saying, this whole story that I'm going to tell you is a story about creation, but really about recreation, the announcement of a new story of new creation. I'm really fascinated by the ways in the crucifixion story that he plays that imagery out kind of like in big capital letters. So think about the crown of thorns, for example. Jesus is wearing on his head the mark of the curse. We mentioned this last week. The ground is cursed, thorny, because of Adam and Eve's sin. Jesus wears the symbol of that on his head when he's on the cross. Think about Jesus being pierced in the side by the spear. Blood and water come out. The church has said for a long time that the blood and the water is the birth of the church, the water of baptism and the blood of the new covenant. And I'm saying it's creation imagery because it looks just like Eve formed from the rib of Adam, the church formed from this wound in Jesus' side. The one that really gets gets it for me, Jesus, his last words on the cross, it is finished. It's an echo of Genesis 2-3. Remember, Jesus dies on the sixth day of the week. That's the day of creation when humanity is made. That's because he's dying for humanity. But in his last breath, he's echoing the end of the creation story. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. You hear the echo? Jesus, at the end of day six, pronouncing that the work of recreation is done. It's finished. This it is finished, if this is a story of new creation, though, doesn't signal the end but a new beginning. Because Jesus' death is for us the entry point into God's rest into that seventh day, right? So over and over again in the Gospel of John, he's doing stuff like this. John 3 is a chapter that's full of those images. And it's helpful for us to keep that in mind as we're reading the story, as we're reading this dialogue, because it's really easy for us to miss that point in the story if we don't. For example, Stephen doesn't understand the story at all. And that's why the last two times it's come up in the lectionary, he's gotten sick. And I've had to do this. Because when we read this story, here's what it sounds like. There's this nice guy, Nicodemus, who hangs out with people that we don't like, but he's a nice guy. And he comes to Jesus in the dark, and he gives him a vague, veiled compliment. And then Jesus replies with this cryptic, mysterious statement that's hard to understand. Nicodemus then asks a clarifying question that only leads to everything becoming less clear, because Jesus' next answer is actually more confusing than the first one. And it's all this big, dense, swirling fog until, like a light shining in the darkness, we get to John 3.16, and we're sort of rescued by a verse that we know and that's familiar. This is one that can be really confusing for us because we're not quite as familiar with the sort of imagery that Jesus is using. But I am actually pretty convinced that Nicodemus is not confused. I think that Nicodemus would have heard exactly what Jesus was saying because Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel, right? That's what Jesus calls him. He knows the scriptures. So when he hears what Jesus says, 
I think his mind is going immediately to the thing that Jesus is pointing him to. When he hears water and spirit, he hears the story of creation. Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I think this is why Nicodemus responds the way that he does. He's not confused. He's dumbstruck a little bit by the size and the magnitude of what it is that Jesus is saying to him, but also by the implications that this has for himself. Because what Jesus just said was that Nicodemus has to be reborn by water and spirit. Nicodemus, this old man, who has actually spent his entire life studying the Torah and pursuing righteousness, he just heard that all of that that he did in his past counted for nothing, that that didn't bring him into the kingdom of God. That that past of studying the Torah and pursuing righteousness Jesus actually just compared to a dark, formless, and shapeless void that needed to be reformed into something that's new. Even Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, has to be remade. So throughout this whole conversation, I think this is what just sort of stuns Nicodemus. Jesus is exposing him to the depth of his own need for mercy, and he's wrestling with that, and to the incredible magnitude of this gift that Jesus offers a gift that can only be received through him, something that Nicodemus can't get for himself. It's new creation, new life, a new birth. And I loved, as I was prepping for this yesterday, I loved just sort of sitting in the way that Jesus and John narrow this down for him. Think about the setting when Nicodemus shows up. What is it? It's nighttime. Now, a lot of times this gets interpreted as a sort of like, physical manifestation of his spiritual state, that Nicodemus is in a dark place because he can't see the kingdom. And it seems that that's perhaps true. But I'm also pretty certain that this is meant to be the first clue for us in the story, that Jesus is throwing the story back to creation. Because how does creation start? It starts with darkness. The first thing that's made in creation is light. And then with that light is made day and night. Day is made by you know, the creation, the formation of light. Night is made by the contrast with that light. It was already dark, but now in contrast to that light, we have night. And then look at how our passage ends. The light has come into the world. Light, just like a creation. But then look what it does, and look at how people respond to it. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We talk about creation imagery, but I think here there's some fall imagery. Remember the end of our reading from last week? First place that we see that breakdown in Adam and Eve's life after they sinned? It was shame. They disobeyed God, and after that disobedience, the eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths. In other words, they covered themselves because they were ashamed in front of each other. And when the chapter plays out, you see that that shame carries to their relationship with God. God comes down into the garden, and he seeks them out. But they know that they have sinned, and now they know that they are naked. And what do they do? They seek cover. They try to hide. They run from the light and into the darkness. 
They didn't want to be seen by God when he was near. Now, the psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 33, talks about how God is the one who forms the hearts of everyone, so we, and he sees all the things that we do. So this exposure to God that we're seeing at the end of John 3, this light shining in the places where we would want to hide, isn't so much about newly being seen by God, right? Because God already sees us. That's not the new thing that comes with this light. The light doesn't show us to him. I think what it does is it shows us to ourselves. And I think that's part of what sends Nicodemus into this sort of flabbergasted state. Wasn't the mysterious nature of Jesus' answers, but it was that revelation that even Nicodemus had places in his heart that he kept in the dark, that he refused to see. Even this righteous teacher of Israel. I think what stuns him is this reality that even Nicodemus, after this whole lifetime of studying the Torah and pursuing righteousness, even he has to be born again. Even he has to be born from, a, from above. Because to enter this kingdom, he needed a life that came from the spirit and not from the flesh. In other words, that's a life that he couldn't gain for himself. There are so many different ways that we could trace this out in this chapter. And lots of threads and riddles that the whole passage could throw at us. But I love that point because I think that if we look at our own lives, we can't miss it in ourselves either. We're in that same place. Because to enter into the kingdom, we need to be made new. We need a new life. And it has to be, just like for Nicodemus, it has to be one that exceeds all of our achievements or our successes, even our morality, any of those things that we could do for ourselves. Because we don't just need those things, we actually need an utter and complete transformation. We need to be made new. We need to be new creations. That's exactly what Jesus says here that he brings. So when you hear that word, think about all the places where you feel weak or inadequate or insufficient. Hear what he says there, that he offers you his life, like a life that's already been faithful all the way to the end. When you hear the end of this passage, think about all the things that you would want to keep in the dark or keep hidden. In your rebirth, it says that Jesus shines his light on those things. He brings them out into the open but it's not for your shame. God already saw those things. He brings them out. He shines those light on them so that he can heal them. So I want to present us as we end this morning with one practice that God gives us as an antidote for that urge that we have, like Nicodemus, to hide in the dark. And that practice is simply confession. Confession is this act of exposing those places in our hearts and in our lives to Christ's light. Now, I don't mean specifically or necessarily like confession to a priest, although that's certainly a good way to practice that. Confession to the Lord, confession to others, but really, I think specifically confession before the throne, confession to our Father. Because this is that antidote to the self-righteousness that would leave us believing that we don't need rebirth. And what's so beautiful about this, and what I think that this passage really drives home, God so loved the world that he sent his son, right? Is that exposing the rot and the sickness, the sin and the darkness in our hearts doesn't alienate God. It doesn't drive him away. What does Jesus say? The only one who has ever ascended is the one who has descended. He has come down to be with us. God so loved the world that he sent his son. That's God's response to the exposing of our sins before him. 
It's not distance, but nearness. He comes to us there. It's so easy for us because of the ways that we respond to each other to think of confession as something that will put up more barriers between us. If I go to a friend and I admit to him something that he didn't know that I did but that was hurtful, it feels like something has gone up between us, right? That's our natural response to these sorts of things. But God shows us over and over again that confession is actually a step not away from him but toward him. Because in confession, we're actually stepping away from the lies of self-righteousness or self-justification and actually stepping forward towards him because we're stepping forward toward the truth. Believe it or not, confession is actually really, I think, that first step that we take towards deeper intimacy with him. Because in confession, again, we're moving closer, not farther away from the truth. That We are sinners in need of rebirth. So if you want to know what it looks like to make that move from darkness to light, the one that he talks about here, start there. Each act of confession is a death to your old self so you can receive this new life, this new birth that only Jesus offers. And especially if it feels like when you hear this language about new birth, you think new birth should be really quick, but mine has been really slow. New creation in your heart has been a long and slow and kind of arduous process. The confession is the best tool that you have in your belt. It's not to run away from that, but rather to confront that and to go before the Father and to say, Lord, this is going slowly. Here are the places where my heart is hurting. Here are the places where there's sin that has me snared. So my prayer for us this morning, as we talk about this new birth, Talk about new creation, but especially in those places in your life where it feels like that's slow. My prayer is simply that, one, our hearts would be moved to confess. I know that there are, if you're like me, there are, there are kind of go-to places for confession that feel really safe to say before the Lord. Things that when you begin to confess will be the first ones that come out. It's the ones that are underneath those that we hide from, that we need so deeply to kind of dig up, to be exposed to Christ's light. My first prayer is that God would give us the boldness, but also the wisdom and the discernment to see those things and then to be willing to walk into that, to lay those things down before him. Again, there is, there is no danger in laying the sins in our hearts that God already has seen before his throne. The only danger is in clinging to those things and hiding behind our self-righteousness and our self-justification. The only danger is in hiding in the dark. No danger in Christ's light. And then second, that even in the slowness of that, that we would long for glimpses and tastes and growth in this new birth, this new life that Jesus gives. Would we plead for it, fast for it, seek it, want it above all else? My prayer is that even when it is slow, that we would know the love of God that is poured out for us in this. The love of the Father who sends the Son, the love of the Son who comes down willingly, the love of the Spirit who fills us and is with us and is in us, would we know that above all else? That you, with your past and your shame, regrets, weaknesses, self-righteousness, whatever, you are loved by God. So much of this passage might be cryptic and unclear, hard for us to get our minds around, but that part is not. And that part is true.
So may nothing drive us to hide ourselves or to shield ourselves from this light that Christ will shine. We need that light. We need this birth. We need this new creation, but it is given and it is given freely. And so let's learn to grow. Let's learn to receive that in confession. Lent is a good time for that, but it's not the only time. But my prayer is that God, again, would give us that boldness, that wisdom and that discernment to see that sin. Because in confession and learning to see that sin, we actually learn how to love the grace of God more and how to receive it more. Confession is a sort of opening of the containers of our hearts to allow us to receive that mercy that he would give. So would God open us to do that? I pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.